This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Ezekiel 37. And as you're turning there, uh, I just want to echo the invitation to come out on Wednesday night um, as I'm going to have an opportunity to speak to parents. We, we kind of said that that was for elementary age, but it really could be if you've got kids younger or even older. Uh, I want to address this most important topic of leading your child to Christ. I, I don't think there's a more important topic. And I'm going to start with answering the question, is that even possible? Can you lead your child to Christ? Is that even possible uh, to start with? And uh, what's your responsibility and my responsibility and what's God's responsibility in that? But that's really our goal is to have kids that know Jesus, not to have moral kids. As one guy said, we don't want the nicest church kid in hell. We want kids to know Jesus and to have eternal life. So the goal isn't uh, to have the smartest, most athletic, uh, most mannerly, most moral church kid. Uh, the, the goal is to have kids who are alive in Christ and have the Spirit of God living in them. And uh, if it, it, that's the target. So we want to talk about that. And how is that possible? How, do, how does that all work out? So we'll talk about that. And uh, we'll have a little uh, resource to give away for all those who attend as well, a book that we want to give you on that subject. So we are in a series called Revive. And we're doing a different text each week. Uh, today we're looking at, a, at the most famous text in the book of Ezekiel. And the context here is that uh, we've referred to this context in some other uh, sections of scripture we've looked at. The context here is that Israel is in Babylon. They have been, uh, they've disobeyed God. They have been captured and uh, they are now in Babylon. Uh, They're living in exile away from Israel, away from the land that God gave them, away from the temple, away from worship. And so they are crushed they're defeated. They are far away from their homeland. And God steps down. He steps down into their world and speaks to them in the prophet, through the prophet Ezekiel. In the previous chapters, God has just promised that he will give his people a new heart, that he will put his spirit within his people, and he's spoken of this future day. And now he elaborates... And he gives this vision that shows uh, what great work he has in store for his people. And if you're familiar with the Bible, it's sort of easy to read this passage and just think, oh, that's interesting. That's kind of a nice vision. But it is a compelling vision. It is really a gruesome and a grotesque vision, if, if, you, if you read it not with uh, familiar eyes, but if you read it uh, f- like you're reading it for the first time. So let's look at this. We're just going to cover verses 1 through 14 of Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, 
These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we simply pray that this text, this living word, this God-breathed passage of Scripture would take its effect in our lives and in our church. We simply pray that what we read of here would be our actual experience, that your word would come and that your spirit would come and that we would be changed into a exceedingly great army. Lord, we pray, Spirit of God, come and do what only you can do. Lord, I can't preach that into existence. We can't will that into existence. That's solely your work. So we invite you, Spirit of God, come and animate dead hearts that have never known you before and renew and revive those who do know you and are dry this morning. God, come and and do your work, we pray, and we anticipate it for your glory and for the glory of your Son. Amen. Well, the first two verses sort of give the scene here. What's going on is that the hand of the Lord is upon Isaiah, and he takes him out in the spirit, verse 1, and he sets him in a valley full of of bones. He's having a vision. Uh, This happens throughout the book of Ezekiel. God grants visions to him. So this isn't literally happening. Uh, This is happening. It could be happening literally something he sees, or it could be in his mind's eye. We don't know exactly how this prophetic vision works. But he has this vision, and in the vision he sees this valley of bones. And if that was not enough, God actually, verse 2, leads him around. They start walking among the bones. There's very many of them. So he's out in this field, this valley, and it's filled up with bones, and God's taken him on a walk through bones. There are skeletal remains all around him. Now, if you're church folk and you've heard this story before, that's like, oh, yeah, that was that vision and I've heard that before. But it's hard to really get the, the, the grip of this, what, what, how, how serious a vision like this would be. One commentator, Christopher Wright, this is what he said about this passage, this vision of the bones. He said, television pictures of the aftermath of war are the nearest we can get to the horror of what confronted Ezekiel in his vision. So he's saying, what you've seen on TV, if you could magnify that, that's what he sees. When we see unearthed mass graves, bodies in gas chambers and concentration camps, piles of skulls and skeletons, severed limbs after street explosions, bloated corpses after earthquakes or tidal waves, all modern images with fill, which fill us with revulsion and the shudder of witnessing human death on a mass scale. None of these, of course, is quite what Ezekiel saw, but the impact of a whole vast plain covered in unburied human bones must have been equally appalling. As a priest, he was not allowed to touch a human course, corpse, yet... Here the hand of God actually takes him for a walk to and fro through the grisly scene. He's a priest, not even supposed to touch a corpse or he'll be unclean. And God has him walking through this valley of bones. Perhaps some of the skeletal remains are intact where you could tell that's really a a human that died and laid there. Perhaps some of the bones are scattered and there's skull here and a femur there and a foot bone here and a rib cage over there. And they're just all as far as the eye can see death. This is, this is literally death valley. That's where he is. God shows him this. And not only uh, are there very many of them, but verse 2 says there were very many on the surface and they were very dry. So this isn't recent death. These, these thousands, perhaps, of people have died and uh, the scavengers have scavenged their bodies and the heat 
and the sun has bleached the bones so that they are very dry. It's not just death. It's not just recent death. It's old death. It's death that's taken place a while ago, and the sun and the scavengers have picked the bones and dried the bones, and there they are in this valley. That's the setting. Second thing we see is the question. There's a setting, and then there's a question. Verse 3, he said to me, God says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? I mean, that is an absurd question, isn't it? I mean, how can the, how could these bones live? There, there's a couple of instances in the Old Testament where God did give life to someone that was dead in both the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, but those were recent deaths. Those were people that were, well, not mostly dead, all the way dead, but recently dead so that they were intact. They weren't bones that had dried out. So he says to him, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. I love that answer. He knows enough not to tell God, no, it's impossible because God can do anything, but he doesn't have enough faith to say, sure, sure, they can live. God, do your thing. He's not saying that. He's saying like the guy in the New Testament, I believe now help my unbelief. He's like, "Uh, God, I'm just going to defer that answer to you. You know whether they can live or not. He puts the answer back on God. Now, as I said, it's a vision. It's not a literal event. It's a vision. And I want to skip to the interpretation of the vision because down at the end in verse 11, uh, God says what the interpretation of the vision, what it represents. It represents something. Verse 11, he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. This is the people of God is what he's saying. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. The next, the next verse, he talks about opening their graves, raise you from your graves. Oh, my people. These are God's people. These are not unbelievers. These are not pagans. These are not people dead in their sins and transgressions. This is the church, we could say today. This is Israel. This is the people of God. And so when he says, can these bones live, these very dry bones, what he's saying is, can the people of God be revived? Literally, revive means live again. That's what he's asking. The the word revive is not used in the passage, but it's just strongly implicated through, uh, implied rather throughout. Son of man, can these bones live? Can these people live again? Can the people of God, Israel, come back to life like they once had? Can they experience life again? See, here's how the people describe themselves. Verse 11, they say, here's what the people of God say. Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. We're dry. All the people of God say, we are in a spiritual desert. And the most lively picture that can be offered of that is a bunch of bones. We are hopeless. We're without hope. We're cut off from God. We're in this foreign land. God seems distant to us. He seems a memory to us and we are dry. It's interesting. We use that same language today. I mean, we say something, you need, I filled up with gas. You know, it took whatever, a full tank. My tank's 18 gallons. It took 18 gallons. I was bone dry. We use that about our spiritual lives. I'm, my, I just feel like I'm in a really dry time. I'm in a, how about this one, a spiritual desert. Hey, this isn't a spiritual desert. This is a valley of dead people who died a while ago and have decayed. There's no, no uh, marrow even in their bones. They're dried out. And they feel cut off. They're living as exiles in Babylon. They can't even imagine what it would be like to be back in the homeland experiencing God. Now, they're not slaves like in Egypt where everybody is being basically tortured and beaten. I mean, they're living lives. They're working jobs in Babylon. They are having kids. They are doing their deal. But they are spiritually dead. They are distant from God. And they are asking, no, they're saying, we're dry. And God is asking, Can there be new life come? Can revival and renewal come to those who have lost hope? Can they experience God's known, felt, experienced favor again? That's the idea behind this passage. Can we be renewed? 
Now, they mean something that would be both literal and physical and spiritual. Literally, it would be returning to the homeland, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, encountering God in worship while they live in exile. So there'd be something literal, but there'd also be something very spiritual there as well. And the New Testament speaks of us being strangers and aliens. Christians live in exile. This is not our home. Spiritually speaking, if you're a believer, you live in exile. You're not in heaven. I'm not in heaven. We live in a world that is opposed to God and his purposes. We live with the daily temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil. So we live very much in exile ourselves. And it's possible to go about our regular business and feel I'm dry as a bone spiritually. I'm hopeless. I am cut off. Can we be renewed? That's the question God's asking. Can the, can the people of God be revived, brought to life again? And that's a question some of us are asking as well. As we have been going through this series on revival, a biblical study of revival, um, it's possible for us to respond in different ways. I mean, we read these texts every week, and some of us are on the edge of our seat, and we say, I'm all in. I love that stuff. I've lived through that stuff, meaning God's presence, uh, you know, speaking to his people, refreshing us. I am for that. Come, Lord, let's, let's do it. Uh, I, I want to experience that. So there are some of us that are all in. There are some of us that are a bit hesitant, saying, okay, I'd like to just see what's going to happen here. Uh, is something happening to my church? I'm not quite sure what's going on. We've never had a series of sermons like this. Um, what, what's going to happen? Some of us are more than hesitant. Some of us are really maybe even reserved or fearful, fearful of what might happen if God renewed the church, or perhaps fearful of what might happen if God renewed some people who are experiencing God in a fresh way and didn't renew me. So maybe fearful of what wouldn't happen if I really put my heart out there and believe. And and this passage speaks to all of us, those who are all in, those who are questioning, those who are fearful and distant, because God is saying, can these bones live? And he is giving an answer. What's happening in this passage, like the other passages we've studied in this series, is we're learning something about God. We're learning something about the nature of God and the character of God that should be foundational in our Christian lives. Yet some of us don't really have a category for this nature of God, and that is the God as restorer, the God as renewer, the God as reviver, if that's such a word, the God who brings revival. This passage shows us what God is like and how God interacts with his people. Each of the passages we've read have done that. It shows us something about God, and so that's really the goal here is to learn about the way of God with his people, especially when they are dry and lifeless. If you feel like you have been dry for so long that you have lost hope, then this passage speaks directly to you. I I don't know of a passage that speaks more directly to you. I mean, there may be one, but this passage is directly aimed at you. It's the very question that God asks Ezekiel. If you wonder if renewal is possible for you or for someone you love, this passage is aimed right at you. If you're facing a desperate situation in some area of your life, your marriage, your relationship with your children, you're a young person, your relationship with your parents, something that's happening in your work, in your personal relationship with the Lord, if you are just experiencing what feels like a lifelessness, you're just going through motions and not encountering God in the, in the areas of your life. I mean, maybe you get a whisper of God's presence on Sunday morning, but the rest of your life is flatlined spiritually. This passage speaks directly to you. If you feel disconnected from God, even when you are with his people, that's what's happening here. So like, I show up to the small group and... There's people that are encountering God. Somebody's crying over here, and somebody's telling a great report of what God did over here, and people sing, and they act like they really mean the words they're singing, but it's just, to me, it's, it's just like I'm, I'm an observer. I'm not encountering God. I mean, I come on Sunday morning, and I hear the message, and I think that's good, 
And Craig seemed pretty hyped these last four weeks about this stuff. And okay, but I just feel like I'm watching somebody. I'm a guest at someone else's party. I'm like a wedding crasher. I went in there. I don't know any of the people. (laughs) I may get a piece of free cake and punch, glass of champagne. But I can't celebrate because I don't even know. I have no, it's like there's no relationship here. That's what it feels like to me. I know I'm a Christian, but there's just this this distance, this separation, then this passage is for you because God answers his question. Can God bring spiritual life to dry bones? What kind of God is he? When God makes a covenant with his people, what does he do? What does he do when they sin? What does he do when they distance themselves from him? What does he do? He lovingly disciplines them. They go to exile, but then what does he do? What kind of a God is he? Does he leave them? Does he let them go and remain distant? This passage says, what is God like? And he shows us through this miracle. Look at verses 4 through 6. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews, that's tendons, I will lay tendons upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am the Lord because of this work I'm going to do. God's going to reveal himself by telling Isaiah to speak to these bones and then something's going to happen with the bones. Here's the first thing I want to note in this picture is that it is God that takes initiative towards his people. Isaiah didn't, I'm sorry, Ezekiel, I did that last week. Sorry if you were in the second service last week. I preached a whole message and said I was in Psalm, Psalms and I was in Isaiah and someone told me that after the message. So feel free to yell out at me if I'm, if I'm preaching another text. I almost went to Isaiah again. Ezekiel, there we go. So Ezekiel doesn't say, hey, we've got we've to do something to improve ourselves. We've got to get some kind of a program here so that God will respond to us. No, it starts with God. God comes down. God gives Ezekiel a vision. God says, I'm going to show you something that reveals what kind of a God I am. Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament commentator, says, by calling and sending a prophet to the dry bones... God, in his sovereign grace, initiates Israel's revival. God initiates revival. If there is any fresh hungering and thirsting for God in your heart, God initiated that. God is the one that comes to people and initiates a renewal in them. And he does that here uh, by speaking to Ezekiel. This is something that is easy to overlook, It's easy to overlook that God takes the initiative because God is a reviving God. It reveals something very important to us about him. And he does this in difficult times. God comes to the dry. God comes to, uh, they said, our hope is lost. God comes to those who've lost hope. God comes to those who feel like they are cut off from him. God comes in times of barrenness. God comes in seasons of spiritual dryness. God comes in seasons of temptation and difficulty and persecution. God comes to his people when they're experiencing his disciplinary hand. God comes in times of confusion when it doesn't make sense. God comes to individuals who have drifted from him. God comes to churches that have drifted from him. God comes to people that don't deserve his presence And he says, look what I'm going to do, the impossible in your midst. If you are dry, if you have lost hope, if you feel cut off, exact words of Israel, then you are a prime candidate to experience the renewing power of God. That's the people God comes to. He comes in his grace and his mercy to those who feel distant with his presence to work in them. So the first observation here is that God initiates revival. The second thing is we notice what is the method or the means of revival. He revives them with his word. 
That's where the revival comes. It's not just some mystical experience that occurs. It is is the word of God that brings it. He says to him, prophesy, that is, deliver a word from God. Ezekiel's a prophet. Deliver a word from God. Speak a word from God. Verse 4, speak a word from God, prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is totally preaching, word-centered. Prophesy, say, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord is the next phrase. I mean, he couldn't say it. He says it four or five times. In about 10 or 15 words, four or five times, he's speaking about the word of God. So he says, speak the word of God. Get, speak the word that I am giving. That is the paradigm of how God renews. It happens through the declared word of God. Bruce Walkie, who I just quoted a minute ago, he, he says that, that in revival, it is the preached word of God through which God resurrects dry bone saints. Listen, if you're a dry bone saint, it will be the word of God that will wake you up. It will be the word of God that will give you new vision for him and new life as well. And the goal of that will be verse 6, they shall know that I am the Lord. So I'm gonna, I want you to speak to them, Ezekiel. Speak to these dry bones. At this point, Ezekiel doesn't have the interpretation. So this sounds really weird. See all these dry bones? I want you to start speaking the word of God to them. Prophesy, deliver the word that I give you. So verse 11, we find out it's Israel, that it's figurative. Right now, he's just seeing this vision and is being told to speak to them. Look what happens when he speaks to them. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded... The prophet delivers the word of God under the word of God, just obeys God. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So it's a two-stage process. First thing he does is he prophesies to these bones. What's happening here is a reverse decomposition. The bodies have decomposed, and now it's this reversal of decomposition where there's a sound, there's this rattling and the bones get connected and the head bones connected to the neck bone. And you get the picture this, this body comes together. These skeletons come together and then tendons come on them and muscle, flesh, fat, organs, the whole thing. And then skin covers them and they stand up, but there is still no breath. So as he speaks the word, it's not a complete work at first. There's no breath in them. There's structure, but no life. There is form, but no spirit. It's not a completed work. It's, 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 it looks like they're alive, but there's no breath in them. They give the appearance of life, but there is no life in them. That's the church at Sardis, by the way. In the book of Revelation, when it goes through the churches, he says to the church at Sardis, Jesus says, you have the reputation, I'm paraphrasing, I can't quote it, but you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You look like you're alive, but you're not. Ray Ortland says about this stage of the revival, this stage, this is what he says, some churches like these bodies are incomplete in their restoration. They're well organized. Their structures may even claim a pedigree rooted in the Reformation. But where is the life? Or we may think of some individuals. They profess faith, they submit to the church's ordinances, and they fulfill the expectations. Outwardly, they fit the profile of, quote, good Christian, unquote. But where is the life? Preaching to the dry bones of a dead church is God's way of moving them into revival. So it is a declared word that moves them into this renewal. But it's not just the announcing of the word. It is the word going forth attended 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. I read a a story about a professor from, um, oh, I'm, I'm blanking out, Trinity. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. And he took a group of students out to a cemetery. And uh, they got out to the cemetery, and then he instructed one of the students to start preaching to a gravestone. It was like, whoa, okay, this is a little weird, you know, uh, I'm sure they were thinking, but he, he insisted, and the guy started preaching to the gravestone to make the point that dead people uh, need more than just words to respond. It is the word of God and the Holy Spirit attaches itself, uses, speaks through the God-breathed word to bring life. It is, it is the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God. It is word and spirit that brings life. That's why the word of God can be preached and an unbeliever who has a dead heart that's never been brought to life can hear it and it makes no sense and has no effect on them. Down the row, a Christian is greatly responding to the word of God, and they're like checked out totally. Why? Because the spirit of God is not influencing them, is not, is not changing their heart, because the spirit of God does not dwell in them. They are blind, Paul says. That's why sometimes a dead church or a dead individual can hear God's word preached, and it's the preaching, it's not them that's the problem. It's the preaching, it's just kind of dry, I don't really get anything out of it. I don't get anything out of the preaching if it's biblical preaching usually reveals a lot more about me, the hearer, than it does the word being preached. I don't get anything out of when I hear that sermon usually speaks to my heart and not the preacher. Even the worst sermon, if the gospel is being preached, should have something in it that the hungry heart, the alive heart, the leaning forward heart can get some nugget out of it to feed their soul. If the Bible is being preached, that the gospel is being announced. So the spirit of God comes, the, the hungry heart, the alive heart encounters the word of God. The spirit of God comes and it makes all the difference. Verse nine, he says, prophesy to the breath, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come, O winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain bones that they may live. He's prophesying, but I think we could say here, he's kind of praying as well, isn't he? I mean, we know the breath, and several words are used here. Breath, wind, look down at verse 14. I will put my spirit, these are all the same word in Hebrew. Breath, wind, and spirit are all the same word. And so, he is calling for the spirit of God to fill these bodies and give them life. That's something of a prayer. It may be a preaching but, but he can't accomplish this. He, he depends on God to accomplish this. So it's something of a, a praying as well. God, would you fill your preaching? Would you fill your people? Would you attend the preaching of the word and affect these lives, these hearts? And the spirit of God comes and he fills the bodies and they live. Verse 10, breath came into them. They lived. They stood on their feet and they were an army. It went from a valley of death to an organized, empowered army, ready to obey the commander, ready to be sent on mission, ready to work together, to guard one another, to have each other's back, to work as a unit for the purpose of the commander, an army, not just a collection of people. And they all stood up and they stood around, hands in their pockets. That's not what happened. And they all stood up and they walked into the temple and they sat down and listened for an hour and left and became bones in the valley again. No, that's not what happens. They're an army. I don't think, I don't think the picture is accidental. It could be that this is a picture of the valley of people that were killed uh, when the Babylonians invaded, potentially. So it could be God's going to restore his people as an army. That could be what's going on. But whatever's going on, they are exceedingly great, having been brought to life by the word from God, this prophetic word, and empowered by the Spirit. And so now they're an army with mission, with purpose, with calling. They're alive, and they're powerful. And so finally, he gives the interpretation. Verse 11, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Wow. 
What's going to happen? God's going to do something great. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I'm the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people, I'll put my spirit within you. You shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I've spoken and I'll do it, declares the Lord. So he says, uh, God's going to do this. It's a word. He, he gives this vision to Ezekiel to show him what he's going to do. And he changes the metaphors in verse 12. It goes from bones being transformed into an army to those who are in graves and are raised from graves. Oh, my people, I'll bring you into the land of Israel. Is this a picture of the future resurrection that all believers in Christ will have? I don't think so, because there is a future resurrection for all who believe in Christ. But he's not talking about future resurrection, literally. He says, I will bring you, he says, I will raise you from your graves. I will bring you into the land of Israel. The raising from the graves is just a different picture from death to life. When I bring you into the land, which literally happened historically, and you can read about what happened there uh, in uh, Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, prophets that speak once the people are already in the land. You could read about uh, Ezra and Nehemiah as well. So they, they, they are taken back. And what he's saying is this new life will be represented by me giving you the land. I'll put my spirit in you. I will place you in your own land. So there is literally a prophecy here that something's going to occur that will be like going from dry bones to an army, that will be like going from six feet under to resurrection. It'll be like that. It'll be taking you back into the land. So I don't think it's primarily about physical resurrection. We have to go somewhere else in the scripture to read about that. He's still using a a metaphor here about the grave. God grants new life. That's the point. When God's people are dry, weary, feeling separate, feeling hopeless, sensing cut off, maybe in terrible, dire circumstances, or maybe not, But in spiritually dire circumstances, God is a God who faithfully revives his people. That's what Isaiah, that's what Ezekiel uh, is reporting that God communicated. Can they live? Oh, they can live. They can be an army. An army. Can they live? Oh, it can be like coming out of a grave to life. They can live. How do we apply a passage like that? like this. Well, I'm going to speak to a couple of groups of people, three groups of people to be specific. First of all, I'm going to say this, that you must live before you can live again. This is about living again. This is live again, which literally means revive. So this is about revival of God's people, but they are already God's people. So they are being brought back to life from a, per- a period of, that feels like a spiritual death. But before you can come back to life, you must live for the first time. And the Bible teaches this, that we are all, Ephesians 2 says, spiritually dead. All of us. There's no, there's no corpses in the room that I'm aware of. Most of you are moving. A few of you are nodding off, and I, you kind of look corpse-like. But uh, there's no corpses in the room. Everybody here is physically alive. But in a group this size, there are probably some that are spiritually dead, and you would not know that by looking. They look alive, but the reality is their hearts are not alive to God. Why? Because you've never believed in Jesus, and you are dead in sin. The Bible says that God is holy. We sang about it extensively this morning. And because he is holy, we are separated. Everyone on the planet is naturally separated from him by our sins. We sin. We break the commands of Scripture. We are uh, commanded to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and yet we love ourselves. We're called to love our neighbors ourselves, yet we all would confess in countless ways we've been selfish and not sacrificed our lives for others. So we, are, we commit sins because we are sinners against a holy God. And so we're spiritually dead because of that, and we're headed to an eternal suffering in hell to pay for our sins. But Jesus came to give his life. Jesus is God in the flesh. He came to give his life, not to make us better people, not to make us moral people, not to grant us success in life, but to take dead people and make them alive. Jesus comes and dies on the cross, taking our sins upon him, 
God the Father punishes him for our sins. Jesus is buried. Jesus comes back to life. And anyone who will turn from their sin and believe in Jesus has new life, eternal life. That's why Jesus came. That's what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus does. It takes dead spiritual people and gives them life in Christ, forgives their sins. Uh, uh, God the Father adopts us as his child, grants us new life. It's the greatest miracle imaginable. And this passage will mean nothing to you if you haven't had that experience. You, you need to go to Ephesians 2, like I said, before you go to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is about the people of God. And to become part of the people of God, we must believe and receive what he has done for us as a gift of new life. He didn't come to improve your life. He came to give you life and to give you abundant life in him, the scripture says. So if you're here today and you've never believed in Jesus, you can believe today. You can trust him. You can say, I believe in Jesus. I realize I'm a sinner separated from God and I believe in what he did, what he did for me. And you'll be reconciled to God. God will be your father. You'll be part of the people of God. The spirit of God will come and live in you and fill you. It's glorious. It's the greatest event imaginable. It's called being born again, receiving new life, being converted, being saved. You've heard these various terms perhaps. So that's one group of people. If that's you and you're not even sure what it means, I want to encourage you at the end of this service to stick around for the beginning of the next service because we're going to baptize some people who've had that experience. And you're going to hear from them what that was like. So you, you stick around or you come talk to us. We'd love to help you. So the three groups of people, you got, you got to live before you can live again. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, the Bible says you're spiritually not alive. And we want to see you have new life and have your sins forgiven and be touched by the love of the Father. Number two, this passage is for those who are asking, can renewal really happen? This passage addresses those who doubt and those who fear. The, 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 the way God poses this as a question reflects that that was something the people of God wondered about. Has he forgotten? Will we ever be changed? There can be a doubt. Maybe, afraid. maybe, maybe there's a, you're afraid when you hear about renewal. Maybe you're afraid, you're a Christian, but you're, you're nervous about that. You're concerned about that. Let me, let me review what this, what this passage teaches, because I believe God wants to, to move us from fear to faith when it comes to believing him for renewal. The passage teaches us that revival is the work of God, that he takes the initiative, and that he does the work. That means it is good, because God is good, and God only does what is good. It will never go badly for you if you experience more of God's presence and work in your life. Maybe difficult. We talked about the potter and the clay. He may shape you in ways that are challenging, but it will always be better to experience life change from God. So it's, it's from him. And secondly, it comes through from God through the means. The means of renewal is the word of God accompanied by the Spirit of God, Word and Spirit. So that means that renewal and revival comes through the same means. It's not a new thing. It's the same means we always experience. It's the same way we grow at all. It's through the Word and through the Spirit. The difference in renewal and revival is that it is an intensification of the word and spirit. So we see God in a way we hadn't seen him. We experience the spirit in a way we haven't perhaps before. There's a nearness. There's a conviction. There's a joy. There's a love. There's a freedom. There's a hunger. All this stuff is intensified, but it's not something new. I mean, I've heard people say, yeah, we're having real revival. Really? What happened? We just sang. We just cut the preaching out. We just sang and had an experience. That's not biblical revival. I'm not saying you can't have a night of prayer and, wor- and, and singing and waiting on God. Of course you can have that. I'm talking about when someone says, as a regular way, we just don't, we don't really have that. We're just encountering God. How are you encountering God? We encounter God through the word and the spirit. That's what Ezekiel says. He doesn't say just have a mystical experience in your own world that you create. He says, give them the word of God. And call the Spirit to accompany it and watch bones turn into an army. So it's the, revival is not some new thing. It's the same means, the preached word, but all of a sudden, whew, the lights go on. We experience God in a way we hadn't before. 
That happens in churches. Same guys preaching, preaching the same sermons. They're not any better necessarily. And then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God falls and people are convicted in a way they weren't before. People get saved. People get renewed. God works in that way. God produces a fresh heart so that we see him more accurately. And get this, it comes through the mind. The preached word gives truth to the mind so that I understand something about God and that affects my heart and that stirs my emotions. I gave an example last week about uh, Jonathan Edwards preaching and people weeping as he preached. Some weeping over their sins, some weeping over the joy, tears of joy of forgiveness, some weeping because they had a lost loved one that they were concerned about. But it was, they were emotional. Renewal and revival has an emotional aspect to it. If you are more aware of the holiness of God, it will touch your emotions. If you're more aware of the fatherly adopting love of God, it will touch your emotions. But there's a difference in encountering God through the word so that my mind understands him differently and my emotions respond to what I see and understand from the word. There's a difference in that kind of emotion and emotionalism which is we don't need the Bible, let's just have an experience. Two very different things. So there's no need to fear that the word of God comes with the spirit of God and changes us, even if we have an emotional encounter from that. That is a good thing. Lastly, I'd say this, the revived person isn't just having a momentary experience, but a change of life. That's how you know revival is real too. We're having revival down at the church, really? Yeah, people are all coming in a room and they're having an emotional experience or they're sensing something or something's happening or they're weeping over their sin. Man, that may be real. That may be powerful, but it will show up Monday afternoon and Tuesday morning if they're really revived. So the revived person doesn't just have an encounter under the preached word, though it starts there. It carries over. It's life change. So the revived mom has a different attitude towards her child. And the Spirit of God is helping her with love and patience, whatever. The revived mom experiences God in motherhood. The revived student has a different view of their schoolwork all of a sudden. A different purpose, a different motivation, a different attitude towards their teacher a different burden for their fellow students that wasn't there before. That's the revived student. The revived person in the marketplace is encountering God while they work. It's not Sunday morning for an hour and a half, and then we miss. It's a changed heart. Who wants a one-hour experience? I mean, I'll take that as a start. I want a changed life. I want something that affects me Wednesday afternoon and Friday morning. So it's not the person who's just kind of floating around on the job. It's the person that's, that's doing their work for the glory of God. They never saw God in their work before. If this was the spiritual stuff. That was the lame stuff. Now they're saying that's the spiritual stuff, and I'm working for the glory of God, and I've got a new attitude. I'm encountering God while I do the supposed mundane. There is no mundane in the revived heart. The Spirit of God affects us. So revival is when... The word of God is preached and the gospel is declared the normal means, but there's an intensification. There is a, uh, there is a, an increased work of God. There is an accelerated work of God. So it's sort of like looking at a, uh, uh, this is probably a crass illustration, but it's sort of like looking at a stock, the history of, a, of the stock exchange or a particular stock. And you'll notice if you say, well, over the last 10 years, it's really gone up, but it didn't go like that. You know, it went up, and then it dropped a little bit, then it went up, and it dropped. That's kind of the Christian life. But on that chart, whoa, there was this one really big spike. And it never went down to where it was 10 years ago. It it went down some. Intensive revival doesn't last forever, but it brings real change. So the maturity and the godliness and the holiness of our life is on a pathway of growth, and there's spikes in the midst of it. Sometimes the decomposing takes a while, but sometimes the renewal comes like streams in the Negev. We read that in the Bible where there's a desert and there is a flash flood. God does that sometimes. Sometimes he just does it through normal means in changing us. But a renewal and revival is when he does an accelerated work. So there's nothing to be apprehensive about or fearful about. And that's the point of this passage. God's going to do a good work so that we can have faith. 
Last group of people, those who have never lived need to live before you can live again. Those who wonder about renewal, revival, are apprehensive. It's the word of God. It's the spirit of God. It is, there may be emotion, and, but it leads to life change. Last thing is, this is a passage for those who are dry. You, have to, you can have zero biblical interpretation skills and go, I think this passage is about there was some dead people and then they were alive. And you got it. That's the heart of the passage. God wants us to come away and say, what does God do for dry people? He renews their life. Does it happen today? I don't know. Does it happen in a year? I don't know. What does it look like? I don't know all the details, but I know God's a reviving God. And that's what I want you to know. So that you're leaning towards him. You're asking him. You're going to the word expecting him. Why? Because that's who he is. And if we're living with a conception that he doesn't do that, then we're not living believing the God of the Bible. And there's nothing more important in your life that you believe the God of the Bible is who he says he is. And so if you have no category for God coming in like a rushing flood or over a period of time and changing you, then you don't have a biblical conception of God. You have a sub-biblical view of God, and we must have a biblical view of God. And so if you are dry, I can't say to you, I'm going to pray a prayer right now, and a rushing water is going to come on, and you're going to be 100% different. I can't say that's going to happen. It might. But I can tell you this, God is a reviving God. And if you're saying we are dried up, we are hopeless, we are cut off, that's literally what Israel said. If that's you, if that's us as a church, and in some ways it is, in other ways it may not be, but in some ways that's, that's true, then that is no barrier to God. God calls you to walk around the skeletal remains of your life. Say, I used to be alive, but it looks like a valley of bones right now. Like there's my marriage over there. It's like a dry bone. There's my devotional life. It's like a dry bone. There's my work life, dry as can be, going through the motions, waiting for the weekend when I can sit down and watch TV for 20 hours. That's my life. Vision for my children, I've given up. He's not going to serve the Lord. She's not going to serve the Lord. They're an adult now. What do I do? Dry. Friendships, nothing happening for me. I've been coming to this church. I hear them talk about relationships. I don't have relationships. Nobody's loving me, caring for me, helping me. My encounter with the people of God is dry as a bone. Why am I even here? If that's you, this passage is for you. Those are the bones you're walking through. Okay, let's acknowledge reality. That's real. That stuff's all real. But let's don't just sit in a pile of bones. Let's look to the God who revives bones and makes us an army and say, God, you did this for Israel. You did this throughout the scripture. Would you do it again for me and for us? Would you come with your word and would you call us together? Would you put tendons and flesh and skin on us and breathe your spirit in us so that we're not wandering aimlessly in a valley of bones, but we're an army on mission, fulfilling your purposes, making a difference in this city and our neighborhood and in our family because God is at work reviving us so that many people may know him and be changed by him. Believe that God can do the impossible. Take this vision and say, God, if this is for them, I believe it's for me too. And let's see what he will do. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.